Welcome to the Business Leader Podcast. My name is Serena, and today our guest has held executive roles at Barclays, Barclay Card, and American Express. Now she is the president at OFX UK and Europe where she is responsible for all commercial growth in the region. She has a wealth of experience in leadership and 20 years experience in bank payments. Thanks for listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to receive the latest episodes. We'd love to hear your feedback. Email questions at businessleader.co.uk to get in touch. And now it's time to welcome Sarah Webb to the podcast. Welcome, Sarah. It's a pleasure to have you here on the podcast today. Thank you, Serena. It's great to be here. Great. So I'm really interested in hearing about what motivated you to get into finance and technology. Did you always know that you wanted to work within within these industries? I certainly didn't imagine myself as ending up sort of 20 plus years in payments. I have to be honest. That said, I'm very happy I did. I actually fell into, into my first job at American Express it was in my early 20s. I was temping and effectively I worked my way from a sort of temp position to quite a senior role after sort of 10, 12 years at Amex and really sort of, I guess, flourished in, in the roles that I had the opportunity to do whilst I was working at American Express. It was a great time. I suppose, you know, being a woman in, in technology isn't as common as I suppose being a man in technology and it is a very male dominated industry. Did you have many role models growing up that kind of inspired you to to go into the industries or what really kind of planted that seed in your mind from a young age? So I guess 20 years ago, I was working in card payments. So that was probably the the, the sort of cutting edge end of payments at the time. Now, um, it, it wouldn't really qualify in the same way. But I, yeah, to answer your question, I was very fortunate in the people that I worked with um, throughout my career to have both sort of male and female uh, role models at the leadership level, um, very inspirational leaders who, you know, I wanted to be as good as and aspired to sort of emulate their traits of leadership and sort of follow in their steps um, to sort of grow the business, but also have an impact on the people who worked with me. Did you feel kind of from a young age that maybe there were any barriers Yes, I mean, I I went to Imperial College um, where I read maths uh, with management. It was a joint honours degree. So I did two years of a a maths degree and uh, what an amazing place to to go. But uh, I guess on entering uh, Imperial, I certainly felt uh, quite different, which is unusual (laughs) when you represent 50% of the population. It would have changed now for sure. But the ratio across Imperial uh, male to female was 7 to 1. I think I certainly wasn't at the top end of the sort of academic scale either. I'd been to an all-girls school, right? So it was a big, a big sort of shift for me. But the whole experience was great because it taught me how to sort of stand on my own two feet. And actually, I didn't feel like I was held back in that environment at all. I was very much supported at university. When you go to university, the whole point actually is to take you out of your comfort zone and put you in a much more diverse environment. And I think you can learn from that diversity in your ability to navigate that diversity in in many ways. Have you felt as though you've experienced many barriers as as a woman in both finance and within technology? Absolutely. I mean, I firmly believe I have. I think given how long I've been in the industry, it would be strange for me to say that I haven't. I think the world was a very different place 25 years ago. 
I've certainly been at the wrong side of, I guess, even in those days, conscious bias against women. I think now you've got more of an unconscious bias. Everyone means well, that unconscious bias occasionally rises. It's certainly getting better. I think one of the reasons why I joined OFX, which is where I am now, heading up the business for the region, is actually um, it's sort of gender diversity is, is very strong. It's got 60% of the board are women and 50% of the executive team um, are women. And I have to say, that's the first time I've worked in a, a leadership team and with a board that's so diverse on the gender front. And um, it's a real pleasure. One of the things that I love about working at OFX are the people that I work with. And I feel that the trust that we have across the leadership team and the executive team is very strong and very respectful. And I also believe in those stats that say that having that, that diversity represented in your leadership and in your board generally leads to a more profitable business. I'm certainly starting to see that take shape across our effects over the last sort of three and a half years since I've been there. You kind of had an instant response to this idea that you have faced barriers as a woman in in fintech, you know, finance and technology, both being industries that are dominated primarily by men. What kind of barriers came to mind with that response? I don't think this is conscious. I don't think anyone's trying to hold you back. If anything, they feel like they're trying to do you favours. But quite often when you're looking for your next step in your career progression, and I can point to a few examples, I will be saying, I really aspire to do this. I want to lead a business. I want to run a P&L. But often you get pigeonholed into a sort of more back office, strategic role, product-oriented role. Nothing wrong with those roles. But I guess that typical profile of a commercial leader In the past, women haven't always been seen in those type of roles, sort of leading, being in sales, being in the negotiation side of the business, and really around having a seat at the table in terms of that front sort of role in front of customers at a senior level and leading large organizations to profitability. So I guess, you know, on a couple of occasions, I've come across sort of that barrier. Honestly, I don't want to speak too highly of myself. It might have been that I wasn't ready. (laughs) And that's fair enough. But as it actually happened, I I did move into, into another role in other organizations with those leadership opportunities sort of given to me when I made that shift. I'm curious to know, sort of as as you've sort of grown within the industry and gotten more executive roles throughout your career, do you feel like it's necessary to embody more masculine characteristics within leadership? Or do you feel as though female leaders can lead through even embodying sort of more feminine characteristics? I would definitely agree with you on the latter. I do think, though, my younger self... So in my sort of late 20s, I probably assumed that I'd have to embody more of those male characteristics, but I wasn't particularly good at that. I've always believed in being yourself and that authenticity really coming across the people that you work with and for and, and, and who work for you as well. I think it's really important to show your true self. That's not to say that I've always done that. I think that's an evolution that you go through as a leader when you consciously decide to dial up on certain aspects of your leadership style. And I, I, I guess I would have started off as, as a, a fairly young, naive leader um, in my days at American Express. Learned a lot as I transferred over to, to the Barclays environment and then learned even more when I took on my role at OFX. But I guess at various junctures in that journey, 
I've made conscious decisions on the basis of role models around me, as well as feedback that I've received both from people who work for me, as well as my peers and my managers as well. I've made conscious decisions to, I guess, work on certain leadership characteristics to really take me to the next level. I really feel that leadership is not something that you're necessarily born with and that you do have to learn and evolve. And I think it changes over time as well. I think there are different expectations as the world moves on as well. You speak about some of those leadership characteristics. You're not born with, you know, leadership characteristics necessarily, but it's something that you learn over time. What are your leadership characteristics or skills that you cultivate with your leadership style? I have learned to be much more open as a person and I guess extroverted than I normally would be in my personal life, for example, only because that's a real way to sort of win trust and get to know people. I think you spend so much time at work But it's really important that you get to know your teams and what makes them tick. A real fundamental for for me in terms of as as a leader is it's not about me. It's about the team and the business that I am there to lead. I am effectively there to, to serve and really get the best out of people around me. And I think that takes building sort of authenticity and and trust with your team. So the the approach that I really adopt there, and I've kind of had various leadership courses across my time, but I sort of have like four sort of foundational principles, which I I frequently bore my, my leadership team with. I always think it's important to be present, which sounds very basic, but I do think you need to start at the basics. One of my managers used to, um, read his emails and and answer them during my one-to-ones. And he used to drive me crazy. I used to just stop talking. I was even known on one occasion to put his laptop down. I think that was when he was doing it when my team were presenting to him. Now, that person was a great leader. It was just that one trait that actually undermined their leadership capability. And we we gave feedback and, and the person sort of did retract a little bit. So the basics, being present, making every every meeting count to make sure you're giving what you need to give to support that person or that team at that point in time. I think the other areas would be being caring, really trying to understand what's going on in your team's lives without overstepping any boundaries, of course. I do think it's important, though, uh, to appreciate that people working with you may have a lot going on in their lives. Um, And I think that, you know, the last two years has taught that to us you know, 10 times over, 100 times over. It puts a lot of people under a lot of strain. So it was good that I came into that with that skill set sort of honed to a degree. And then the other area, which I really, really had to work on was being inspirational. And I, I would say you can never stop trying to be more inspirational. And I think it's key. And I think that is is not just being a dynamic person. And I was surrounded by some really dynamic leaders. You know, I really aspired to to be as strong as them from an oratory perspective. And I really worked at that. But I think also having a very clear message and a pathway um, to share with your team and sort of a a goal and a purpose is really, really important. Um, And it's something I really tried to bring into my role at OFX. And then I guess the final sort of tenet that I, I really sort of try and follow is, is, and I didn't have so much of an issue with this one, but it's just being rigorous. So it's, it's keeping regular cadence, being disciplined within reason, obviously. And I think that's become even more important in a sort of more online hybrid working environment um, to sort of keep connected across the organization. 
We will come back to leadership qualities and skills in a moment. But I do want to ask you about something that comes up time and time again on the podcast, and that's imposter syndrome. And I'm just wondering what your experience of that has been. And, you know, we were speaking about sort of being a woman in a male-dominated environment. Do you feel like women in business are maybe more susceptible to imposter syndrome than maybe men in the industry? And and what is your personal experience of imposter syndrome? Yeah, it's a really good one. I loved it when I remember the relief I felt when I heard the term imposter syndrome and that it was potentially a common, a common issue for many people. It kind of made you feel like you weren't unusual. So without doubt, I, I'd be surprised to meet any any successful leader, to be honest, who hasn't had some form of imposter syndrome at some point in their career. I don't think it goes along gender lines at all. If anything, you could argue that you know the profile of men when they go for new roles tends to be a bit more of a stretch. So they're more likely potentially to have imposter syndrome because they've gone into a new role that is really pushing them. Whereas I, I really struggle to hire women. They tend not to apply until they've ticked every box. I've sort of done that myself in, in, in the past. So, you know, really, I think it's normal to feel like that. I think we probably felt that, like that for our childhood and at school. And I, I think it's good to be honest about what you're comfortable with and what you're, what you're not. I came into OFX without any currency background. It was all sort of card payments and sort of Visa and MasterCard sort of network payments. So for me to then go into cross-border international money transfers, that was quite a shift in terms of I didn't have that technical foundation. And I'd always had the technical foundation in my prior roles. So I've always been very open and honest with my team about where I might have some gaps. So rather than make it a sort of hidden secret, I think expose the areas that you feel less comfortable about. And then it's no longer imposter syndrome. It's just normal human way of of sort of coping and, and, and running your business. You mentioned the fact that many women in these industries won't even apply for roles. And so, yeah, your, your own experience of hiring has been that there aren't really many you know, applicants in the first place. What advice would you give to women in these industries about empowering themselves and having, I suppose, the confidence to recognise that they have a skill set to be able to get into these perhaps executive roles and executive positions? I think it's as much about sort of the attributes that an organisation is looking for and the cultural fit. So do not underestimate those, I guess I say to future applicants. It's hugely important. And I think more and more companies are looking for female leaders. They see the advantages of that. Not not at the expense, actually, of great male leaders. I really must say that. And, you know, I've worked for many inspiring men and women. So I think it's it's not to discount yourself and use the opportunity to put yourself out there, actually, and, and build your network in a very conscious, active way. I always think networking is really hard, generally, for people. Um, I think women find it a bit harder is what I've understood from, from certain forums that I've attended. And I think it's networking without a purpose is always difficult. So if you have a purpose, which is you're looking for your your career path and how to develop, then most people, myself included, are more than happy actually just to meet people for a coffee and give them advice uh, or find out more about them. I see it as a two-way opportunity, to be honest. And actually, the way I compensate for the lack of female applicants is I typically will reach out to 
people that I don't know um, and sort of tap them and say, look, I'd love to get to know you. Um, Shall we meet for a coffee? And it's normally when I'm looking to hire or building a pipeline. And I'm always looking for that potential in terms of not just their technical attributes, but their leadership attributes as well. I just want to speak about your role at OFX for a little bit. And I'm curious to know what you would like to leave as your legacy within this role. Is there anything that comes to mind or have you thought about this much? Absolutely. (laughs) Um, So I guess if I take a step back and and give a little bit of a a one-liner on on what OFX is, because we're we're not particularly well known in the UK. We're an Australian headquartered money transfer business. We're listed on the um, Australian Securities Exchange and, and we were effectively born Generally, it's one of those stories in the northern shores of Sydney in a garage by two founders who decided to build the capability online to go and find out the latest exchange rate across different currency corridors. There was so much demand, it evolved into enabling businesses and individuals to move money um, cross-border. And that's effectively, in a nutshell, what OFX does. My role is to lead their regional efforts of growth. So when I joined sort of just over three and a half years ago, It was very much with the intent to take on the UK business and also expand that footprint into Europe, which we successfully did by acquiring our license to operate post-Brexit in Ireland, which allows us to to do business in the rest of Europe. So I guess when you ask me what my legacy and what I want it to be, I very much look at the size of the business that it is today in the UK, and um, it's a 15 million revenue business, so it's fairly small, and it's, it's the smallest region for OFX. And I'm very intent on on driving and timesing that growth by five over the next five years. That's sort of like my mission. You've mentioned the importance of that leadership team and how important having specific characters within that executive team is for yourself and for the company and business. But I'm really curious to know whether there are specific qualities within the people within those teams that you think is particularly important or are there qualities that you like? Are there qualities that you dislike? What's your perspective on that? I think if anyone, it's like you're looking for that honesty and that openness, whether that's people you're working with in terms of as a peer or people who are in your direct sort of leadership team driving the regional sort of strategy. So that's like my number my number one ask. I also really try and avoid, especially with, with my regional leadership team, um, you know, effectively, we're the ones having to drive the growth. I don't need everyone agreeing with each other. It's great we all get on. I think that's wonderful. But I expect active disagreement around the table about the way forward. And that really helps us form the right strategy. I definitely don't have that in every discussion. That would be very time consuming and a big energy consumer. But certainly on those key decisions, you need everyone behind it. So if there's any voice that's not happy, I want it aired. I want it to come to the forefront. I'm not someone who likes side conversations, whether that be across my peers or across my leadership team directly. So I I guess I always invite healthy conflict um, and and quite often will be the one that asks that slightly awkward question that is on everyone's mind just to get the conversation started. I do think it's important when you've got a big challenge to face and work through, but you stay open-minded as well. So what you don't want is people being closed about the way forward, it's their way or there is no alternative. And actually, if you can work through that collectively, you can normally do that if you've got a right, the right trust base. You can then come up with a brilliant solution to any issue or to any opportunity. And that's the bit I love. I think you get a real sense of purpose and team spirit when you get into that zone. 
I just want to pick on something that you said about the importance and actually the necessity of active disagreement and sort of healthy conflict within an executive team. What is something that you do to help cultivate this, but also stop it leaving that boardroom or, or leaving the business itself and, and stop, you know, where's the line between it being healthy and then maybe becoming a little bit more unhealthy? Yeah, and I think that's where the role of the leader really comes into play. So if it's my leadership team in the region, it's my role to make sure that resolution is reached in that dialogue. Sometimes that means a decision needs to be made, which is ultimately my role and rationalised as well. And it may not sit right with everyone. In those cases, you just really need to have a follow up conversation to make sure that they still get that chance to say what's on their mind. But typically what I would try and do more than anything is have that aired in the room. But if it is becoming unhealthy, I I would typically look to to sort of move the conversation along in, in the politest way. I think if you know each other well enough, you can start making the odd joke, et cetera, in the nicest way, just to sort of lighten the atmosphere and get people to see that often these things aren't as big as you as you think, right? There are fundamental disagreements, but I think in the same way that I am part of an executive team globally, I look to my CEO effectively to, to do that ultimate sort of, okay, this is where we're going to land. And I think that's probably one of the most important things as a leader is that you you do land the final decision um, and the final point. It's probably, in my case, it's often a very inclusive, a very consultative decision. The downside of that can take a bit longer, but at least everyone's there. I'm in the right place. But there are times when it doesn't matter how much you consult with everyone, you've got disagreement and that's okay. And I think we just make a decision and move on. Thanks, Sarah. That's a really important point. I just want to pick your brain um, a little bit about sort of the global markets and the current sort of economic situation as well. You know, many businesses and many of our listeners will be, uh, you know, inflation will be something that's really at the forefront of their mind at the moment. What's your perspective on inflation? Do you see it subsiding globally sooner rather than later? Or what's, what's your opinion on that? Well, I am not an expert when it comes to the sort of economic sort of predictions of the future, I have to be honest. And and certainly, I think the amount of sort of economic sort of fragility that we're seeing at the moment is putting a lot of pressure on on many economies globally. And I guess my, my role is very much to look at sort of how do economic trends sort of impact currencies. And there's a there's a really strong correlation there. You've got quite an uncertain outlook globally. And typically when you have that uncertainty, and inflation plays a role in that, but typically what you start to see is impacts on, on sort of currency, the strength of certain currencies. And actually, you can get inflation when an economy is doing really well because demand is growing. And that's sort of what we'd call good inflation. In those cases, you get a strengthening sort of pound if that was happening in the UK. In this instance, really, inflation has been driven by reduced supply in the sort of global markets in terms of energy supplies and the supply chain as well. So what you're starting to see there is is obviously sort of bad inflation, if you can coin a term of of any kind. So when you have that degree of uncertainty, you tend to see investors start to put more of their investments in a safe haven currency like the US dollar. You know, the US still has sort of high inflation in the same way that the UK does and the Eurozone as well. But there's more confidence, I think, in the performance of, of the US dollar over time. So I guess I can't predict where it's going to go. I know the Bank of England is saying it's going to be up in the 11% region. But in terms of my predictions, they probably don't count quite as much as, as the Bank of England's, to be honest. 
And you mentioned there the impact that inflation can have on the strength of currencies around the world. But for those of our listeners who don't know what really actually makes a strong currency, what makes a strong currency? Yeah, no, great question. So a strong currency is effectively where would you want to put your money if you could choose anywhere to put it? And you typically choose somewhere where there's a strong economy, strong growth prospects, the interest rates are possibly higher so that you'd earn a better return on them. I think obviously at the moment, you've got a lot of uncertainty in the markets. Stock prices have taken a, a tumble over, over, the t- over time. And as a result of that, people are looking for safe haven currencies such as Swiss franc and, and the US dollar, where typically you get a much more steady return. So when you look at the pound, for example, you know we've got quite a lot of uncertainty beyond just the economic outlook. We've got our political situation in terms of uncertainty on the leadership side. Interestingly, when Boris actually did announce his resignation after a very extended period of uncertainty about will he, won't he, you saw a slight rise in the pound when that happened. And the reason for that is because something's happened that's certain. It's not necessarily because Boris has resigned, but it's, it's created more certainty. But now we enter another period of uncertainty whilst we wait for the next leader to be elected effectively. So you're likely to see not necessarily softness in the pound, but not much strengthening happening versus the US dollar. It may strengthen versus the euro, depending on the sort of Russia-Ukraine situation and whether Russia decide not to switch um, on their um, energy supplies back on. And that's, that's happening this week, actually. Um, then that could have quite a drastic impact on on the Eurozone, who are more likely to be um, more severely impacted um, than than other countries. Yeah, and it will be very interesting to see sort of what the future holds in terms of that. We are coming to the end of the podcast now, but we always finish our podcast with a segment called Answer the Internet. So this is where we scour the internet for the questions that the public needs answers to. This particular question is from Reddit, and it's from a user called Danish0010. And they ask, if joy became the national currency, what kind of work would make you wealthy? Wow, what what a question. Um, So I guess everyone has different drivers of joy, but uh, surely a theme park ride would just give you that that, that full kick of adrenaline. Not for everyone, though, but certainly I think uh, theme parks would be in one area or running one or going on them. I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm a joyful person, so I can't think of... I think life would make you wealthy, right? So um, in terms of creating that, that that sheer joy. So I appreciate that's quite a, a wide-ranging answer. But I guess for me, any type of physical activity seems to bring out a lot of joy and happiness in people. Dancing um, dancing and singing is an obvious, obvious space, of, of which I can do neither, but I still enjoy immensely. So uh, I think that would certainly drive everyone to be wealthy, for sure. It's nice to hear that you're... you're- sort of very joyful and, and in and in this case would be very wealthy. Um, <laughs> so we are Business Leader magazine. So my next question to you is what makes a great business leader? I think it's being true to yourself and really thinking about, I guess, the privilege of being a leader and the responsibility of being a leader and the impact that you have on so many people. And actually, I think... The thing that I often say to, to people when talking about leadership is, and it's a great question someone asked me, is what would you tell your grandchildren when they ask you when they're sort of five and eight years old and you're, you're really old and they say, oh, granny, granny, what did you do? 
you wouldn't say you ran a 15 million business and a team of, of 100 people, for example. You would probably say, I worked with lots of great people. I made the business grow with them. Um, but most importantly, I really had an impact on those people's lives in a really positive way, both customers and individuals. And you could probably tell a few stories about where you helped out someone when they were having a tough time at home or otherwise. And I think that human kindness can really come across as a leader. It is a privilege and a responsibility. Yeah, I really, really like that answer. That's uh, that's one of my favourite ones we've had so far. So finally, do you have any last words for our audience? I don't think so. It's um, a real honour to be invited to do this with you. Thank you very much. And I just hope I can have a positive impact and help anyone on their leadership journey.